0: How has trouble come to our communities the way it has? Over decades and over generations, trouble has come to our communities. And sometimes it's very important for us to find the door it comes through. We have to identify the crack in our understanding or in our society, in our communities, in our relationships that leaves open this wide door for division to come through and wreak havoc inside even the body of Christ. So how has trouble come to our communities? Well, one certain avenue through which we have been uh, suffering is the fact that we have politicians who are tremendously savvy on both sides of the aisle. Politicians who, are, who possess what I would like to refer to as serpent-like wisdom. They have outwitted the, na- the naivety of the average citizen. I sometimes stand amazed at how did they just pull that off? How did they just get that right? And I'll be honest with you for most part i have to go well you know <laughs> i don't think any one person can pull it off they don't that they they're not that clever that wise it had to have been part of a grander scheme of some kind of divine predestined uh plan because when you look at some of the strategies it's just really too great <laughs> I think for any human to pull off. <clears throat> I, think of, I think of like, for instance, Charles Darwin's idea of, you know, evolution. And when you look at the name of that book, which they never promote, it's not the origin of species only. That wasn't the original name of the book, but it has to do with how certain cultures and certain people groups are superior to others and the survival of the fittest. And you think, how in the world do they reconcile this, that they would push that book, that ideology in a culture like today where it is an absolute crime to believe what was written, yet it's in all of our schools. How do they do it? I don't know. Nobody calls anybody on it. They just let it go you can search it out yourself. But it's one of the most racist documents and ideologies that exist, yet we've embraced it in such a great way. They, the politicians, already know that the best and easiest way to recruit a loyal supporter is to first create a common enemy. There is some kind, there, there, there's a certain glue that just caused people to stick together the moment there's a common enemy. No matter what their differences are, they'll be united if you can articulate this common enemy. To this end, politicians for decades have started and fueled what we know as cultural wars. Suddenly, there exists these divisions that we were very unaware of at the time. And like, oh, okay, I guess there's this huge division they're now talking about and they're putting on TV everywhere. Uh, even my wife and I having to go to our local public school while my son was still in public school and having to talk to the principal six times or seven times in one year, stating that, you know, my son never actually knew about this division until you kind of introduced it to them. And I wish you never did because now there's uh, him and his best friend at the school. Now suddenly there's something there that never used to be there until you guys introduced it. And so seven times in one year did I have to go to the principal and say, excuse me, ma'am, I don't know why you guys are pushing this. Um, and then eventually we just came to the point of saying, we do not want to raise our children this way. We do not agree with, th- with those divisions that have been pushed. And I can list those for anybody afterwards that want to talk to me about it. But we eventually took our children or our son out. And he's been homeschooled for a while now. Uh, thank god i 'm now a principal of my own home school. <laughs> and my wife is the only teacher, and uh, we've got a happy happy little school going on right there in our home. But to this end, politicians for decades have started fueling what we know as cultural wars. They target certain sub subcultures within our society and after targeting that subculture, they strategize a way of turning those that subculture on each other and causing a division. And when the division is there, uh, you know, it's helpful for them. So we know these wars by names like class warfare, turning the poor against the rich. We know these warfares by names such as gender warfare, where, you know, they turn females against males. And we also know these warfares Commonly the thing we're dealing with, racial warfare, where they turn people groups against each other. And the goal here is to create uh, the oppressor and the oppressed, the abuser and the abused, the predator and the victim, especially when it came to, for instance, gender warfare. And uh, when these two roles have been established, and that was one of the main issues I had to talk to our principal about, um, uh, to stop emasculating growing young men. It's not a good thing. And um, when, these, when these two roles have been established and people have identified themselves with being the, the, the oppressed or the abused or the victim, at that point, at that very point, the polit- politician can start making promises. However empty, it doesn't matter. They can start making promises. And when they make these promises, they will enjoy faithful support for most part. For most part. And this strategy is not new. I mean, I didn't articulated everybody knows it you can read it in multiple books and you can see it it's an age-old strategy that's being used and abused in order to gain the the uh, support and the loyalty and the votes the necessary and they have absolutely ravaged and ripped apart society just for their own personal gain this is a great evil this is a great injustice and i just wish there was a way to hold people accountable i just wish there was but It just seems that there isn't. So I'm always amazed. I'm always amazed at how shocked I am at how evil the world can be. Always amazed at it. I'm just uh, like, Jacques, why were you so shocked? Did you not know? (laughs) An unregenerate heart is an evil heart. It's a heart of stone, and it cannot respond to the things of God. And I always tell myself when we get after the fact, when we get after a storm, I go like, Jacques, why were you so shocked? Learn your lesson. But every time it happens to me. And like I mentioned earlier on, and I just really, today is a bit of a different day, so please excuse us. But, um, you know, I just want to talk through this with our congregation. But um, I can't tell you just how absolutely, like, I was just so um I don't know, disturbed or... And heartbroken over the last couple of weeks. Thank you. <laughs> just give me a second OK. But the cruelty that you see is just so unacceptable. Yet the cruelty is not just suddenly now, I mean it's just always been, there. we do nothing about it, you know, we just gotten so used to cruelty and then suddenly when the media makes a big deal about one issue then um, it, it is, I mean you can't take away from it, it is just so cruel even though this one's been highlighted and I remember my wife just, I woke up and she was totally crying and I never knew, I didn't know what was going on and she, sh- she said, look at this video, I said I can't, I don't know, watch it. And because I understand it, you know, I come from a very, very violent culture. I come from, a, I, I was raised in a very, very violent environment and family members of mine, same thing. I don't have to tell my story. I don't want to take away from anybody else's. But have I, I've seen, I've seen people murdered. I've seen people uh, uh, burnt alive. I've seen all of that. And, and a lot of it's r- uh, racially charged. And, but, you know, then you go away, you come to a place and you think, <laughs> you think it's different. It's not why because men are evil the world over i mean generation after generation men are evil uh, and the only way to change that evil in a man's heart is not through a judge and a court system it is through the gospel it's the only possible way of taking a stony heart and changing it with a heart exchanging it with a heart of flesh we all know this right we all understand this as a biblical issue. and so seeing that, and my, my wife being you know so jarred by it and, and broken by it, and of course that death right there um, you know opened the door for so much. and I was driving down the street and I'm looking at some of the protesters and these young people standing with big signs, if the cops," and in my window, and I just I can't tell you um, what's worse you know how broken my heart is over what's going on or how angry i am over what's going on and i'm and i do i personally do you don't have to but i lay so much of this at the feet of politicians and the media because how do you get more ratings sensationalism right and so uh, how do you get more votes divide divide and conquer divide and conquer divide and conquer and and, and the proof of it's in this that The proof of of it is in this, that really a blind eye is turned to daily killings. The blind eye, it's not about a person who died unjustly. People die unjustly daily. Where's the outcry? On a daily basis. Because there are other issues behind that matter here. So, we have to learn that the world acts the way the world acts, and we need to be okay with it. That's who they are. What we should never be okay with, and that is why I need to actually have this family conversation with you. I was thinking of pulling a chair up and sitting down, and let's sit in a circle, and let's just have a family conversation about this, but... But you get my heart. You get where I'm at. I just want to have like the idea that we're sitting in a lounge and let's have this conversation. What we cannot be okay with is that the church acts like the world. That is not okay. That is completely unacceptable for the church to think like the world, to react like the world, and to harbor hate and... And that same disagreement within our hearts. We have to understand that we are different. We have been called apart from this world. We are in this world. We are not from this world. We are representatives of a divine kingdom and not an earthly democracy. We have to grab a hold of that. And for weeks now, really it's been for years I've been introducing the idea, but only last week or the week before, um, I wanted to be more specific about the fact that Christianity, or let me say it, this the Bible, not Christianity, the Bible, because Christianity oftentimes veers very far away from Scripture, but the Bible has the central theme, and that has to do with suffering. But nobody allows or at least say this, nobody articulates where suffering comes from and how to respond to it. I said last week only a two-year-old thinks that the world ought to have no suffering in it (laughs) like if somebody's if somebody has an idea that there's no soft there should be no suffering in the world you go like well okay you're a child you need to grow up there is suffering in the world and we ought to be responsible enough to learn how to deal with suffering and teach our children how to deal with suffering because that's part of growing up and being mature. And the Bible says that's what causes your faith to go through fire and become like pure gold, all right? We have to learn how to deal with it and not fall apart because of it. It is going to be there and it's going to be a reality for every single human being. We have now come to a place... Where we have designed terms like microaggression. Microaggression is not massive macroaggression. It is like, oh, he didn't look at me the right way. He didn't look at me. Oh, I'm, I'm pained. Uh, I'm persecuted. You see, this is. It's just. It's just become overboard. But people play off on those issues and they feed the public those issues. Then we ask, what's going on with the suicide rate? I'm not saying it's the only reason, but personally, I would love to connect those dots. So we have to learn that the world is going to fall apart and act in an evil way, vengeful way, hateful way. That's the world. We expect them to act that way. The church, the church better not act like the world not now and if they do it's only proof of what we've been saying is that churches are no longer churches they are organizations who who build themselves around entertainment and feel good messages and there's no truth in it and when hard times hit they are bankrupt they look like the world they act like the world they respond like the world and you can see no different they kneel to the world and they bow before the world and they follow every single the world gives and they just give in to everything that's demanded of them because they are absolutely bankrupt there's a desert when it comes to truth and this is only the beginning Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? (laughs) That's The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Don't try and understand why the world acts the way the world acts. Don't try and understand why The unregenerate church, those organizations act the way they do because who can understand that? Nobody understands how sick the heart really is. And please, for heaven's sakes, don't agree with anybody that wants to talk about the fact that man is good at his core. He is not. If he was good at his core, the fruits will be evident of it, (laughs) and it's not true. If man was good, Jesus didn't have to come. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What was Jesus' first response? Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Who do you think you are to determine who's good and bad? Let God determine that. And God says every heart is sick. So we should not be surprised at the actions of fallen man. What is shocking, however, of course, is the fact that the church is the same, acts the same. So let me introduce to you um, uh, one of Tina and my favorite teachers. And he's, he mentioned something in this video that I'm going to show you that is, that is so key for us to understand at, a, at the foundation level that we need to lay before we can talk about... Any kind of race issue. Let's see where race comes from. All right. So here's Vodi Barkham. Thank you so much, Han.
1: It does two things here that are incredibly important. One is it identifies the distinctions that matter, and secondly, it identifies the division that exists. Now, these distinctions that matter are important because oftentimes we talk about distinctions and we talk about being distinct from one another in terms of our race. Race is actually a social construct. The concept of race is not a biblical concept. It's not a biblical idea. It is a constructed idea. You won't find the idea of races in the Bible unless you find it in the proper historical context where we see, number one, that we are all the race of Adam. Amen? Amen. One race, one blood. We are all the race of Adam. There is less than a 0.2% genetic difference between any of us in this regard. In fact, we're not even different colors. Now, a- amen. Technically, from a genetic perspective, from a biochemistry perspective, we're all actually the same color. Our color comes from our melanin. We've all got melanin just to differing degrees. So it's not that some of us are, you know, this color, some of us are that color, some of us no, we're just different shades of the same color. Some of us just have more melanin than others, and I want you to, he, listen to me on this, listen to me. Just because you don't have as much melanin as I do, don't you dare think God doesn't love you as much as he loves me because he gave me more.
0: That's Vodi Bakum, and uh, he is a, he runs a seminary in Zambia, fantastic Bible teacher. If you want to start following him, I think he'll be all the better off for it. The scriptures are clear, family. Galatians 3.25 settles the issue. There's no issue beyond this. There is neither Greek nor Jew. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That is what unites us Christ Jesus you according to that verse ought to identify with who you are as Christ being the determining factor of who you are it's got you got no other determining factors inside of the four walls of the church it's different from outside of the four walls of the church outside there they identify not with who Christ says they are they identify with a bunch of other things but here inside of the body of Christ there is there is no there is no such thing as race like Vody says I mean we're all we're, we're all this you know the same color different degrees. So here is why there is so much virtue signal. Let me just quickly backtrack there. For, uh, they, they will absolutely, and I see it all the time. It doesn't matter which TV station I turn on. they constantly driving people to attempt to identify with skin tone. I mean, it's just it's, a, it's an insane thing. And one day, 100 years from today, we're going to look back, and we're going to think, man, those people, they were, they were like real backwards, weren't they? And... Um, a truth, a truth be known, I'm telling you, let me prophesy that to you. People are going to go, like, that was so backward that people would have done that. But why do people do it? Because all of media and all of politics are driving people to those identification. But as far as the Bible is concerned, you ought to be identifying with one and one only, which is Christ Jesus. So, of course, in this family conversation this morning, I want to share with you that I have some Facebook friends. That means they're not real friends. (laughs) Okay, that's just Facebook. Uh, They should call them Facebook acquaintances, don't you think? (laughs) Like I'm acquainted with this person on Facebook, but I used to work with this person. We used to be in the ministry together. And so I'm going to quote for you something that they said. And I went through their page. They used to have a heart for evangelism. They used to have a heart for evangelism by wanting to constantly share the gospel of jesus christ the only power of god to save god has many powers he has a power to create but he has one power to save it's called the gospel of jesus christ this is the answer to this to man this is the solution to man's only problem which is sin from which spreads everything else that's evil okay including injustices all right so here's what this lady posts on Facebook, and I'm telling you where these virtue signaling uh, ideas come from. She goes, attention pastors. Of course, she's also talking to me. She says, if you do not figure out how to talk about racial reconciliation in your church, you will lose this next generation. You will lose them. And then she goes on to explain as to why. She shows how in 2045, the year 2045, um, a specific skin tone will be the majority. And you will now lose the generation because none of them will be interested in your message. All right. So, of course, that's pragmatism to the nth degree. You know, Uh, what do we have to do in order to make sure people like our church uh, forget the scriptures? (laughs) You know, like, we got to, we got to. Do something. Where's get us a smoke machine? Get us some extra lights. Okay, we got to change the style of music. We got to pragmatism, pragmatism. How do we fill the seats? All right, so she says it straight out, very ashamedly. You will lose this next generation if you don't start teaching this message of racial reconciliation. Now, the the word reconciliation is a biblical word, it comes from where the Bible says, Now you have been called to the ministry of reconciliation, right? To the ministry of reconciliation. Um, this, this particular person used to be big on that reconciling man to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so abandon that track. It's not giving me enough prominence. Right now is my moment to shine. I'm going to talk about not reconciliation between man and God. I, I need reconciliation between two, two people's groups. And so now this becomes, the, this becomes the gospel message. And there are conferences. The... Uh, um, Together for the gospel, and all of these conferences that have been having meeting about how to turn the gospel onto this new track. You can go search it out for yourself. But I'm not here to bash all those conferences. I'm just telling you that it's a major push, and this has been a concerning issue for many people in the reform movement for a long time. Because again, we are now going to preach a gospel other than. The one that reconciles man to god alone even if it means that parents uh, parents and their children are now no longer in agreement even if it means that there is now a war between family members jesus said if you don't love me more than those you're not worthy of me well they forget all of that and they go like no the most important thing the greatest virtue of all is is that we can get together no matter what we believe Unity is most important. This is not true, folks. There is no unity. There is no unity between two people, no matter how perfectly their skin tones match. There's no unity if it's not around scriptures and truth. We have to drive that point home all the time because it's so deceptive to think that uh, God has called us to reconciliation. No, He has not called us to reconciliation. He didn't call families members to reconciliation. He said they will be divided. Are you guys following what I'm saying? You know the scripture I'm referring to? Jesus said, I bring the sword. I came to divide. I didn't come to unite. I came to divide people, and you will see it. Every time Jesus appears, there's division. I mean, my goodness, every single time He shows up, there are arguments. He even hangs on the cross, and the two thieves start arguing. (laughs) <laughs> the Bible says He comes back. He puts His foot on the top of the mountain and the mountain will divide. Jesus, the moment He says it is finished, the, clo- the, the, the curtain uh, that, that separates the Holy, holy from the holy, holy of Holies just rips open. Everything is divided when Christ shows up. But there's a remnant that unites when Christ shows up. Those who unite, not around other issues, but they unite around the truth of God only. So, this lady here threatens, and she goes, uh, you will lose this next generation. And, and people who are more reformed go, ooh, what are we going to do? No, they're not. They're the ones that say, like, look, <laughs> I, I know what you're trying to do. It ain't going to work, okay? Because I actually believe that God has already chosen His bride, the bride for His Son. I, I, that's what I actually believe. And these issues, these burning issues... Cannot stop anybody from running to God when God touches their heart. Who can resist the hand of God? Nobody. I'm not interested in people joining our church because we agree on all social issues. I'm interested in people joining the church because we agree upon the truth of God being the highest authority of all. That's what I'm interested in uniting around. So let me show you a video from John MacArthur on this issue. And a man I have much respect for. But before I I let you watch this, I want you to realize his perspective on predestination. Okay? John 15, 16. Jesus said, You did not choose me, but what? I chose you. That's why, you know, when we say, how many of you want to choose Jesus today? That's actually not biblical. You did not choose me. I chose you. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, God says. Before I formed you, I knew you. I foreknew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. You weren't even born yet, and I set you aside. And before you were born... Not only did I consecrate you, but I appointed you a prophet. I already called you. I already have your, your, your ministry lined out for you. I have the words I've got that I need you to speak. It's already there, and you haven't been created yet. Ephesians 1, 3, and 5 says, Blessed be the Lord God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him. When? Before the foundations of the world. Unto what purpose? That we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He, verse 5, predestined us. Unto what? To adoption. Of what? As sons. <laughs> in love, before the foundations of the world. Because of His love for you. That's the word for you. In the Bible, when it says He... He knew her means He loved her. When the Bible says God foreknew you as He loved you before He even created you. Verse 4, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus Himself according to the kind intention of His will. It was His will to say, You, I will love That's why you can say, it's like, Jacob I'd loved, Esau I'd hated. But you, who are here, interested in the truth of God, and in God, and in salvation through Christ Jesus. You, He has loved. He loved you, otherwise you wouldn't even be here. You would have zero interest. He loves you. And you being here is the proof thereof. And Christ hanging on a cross is the proof thereof. And the fact that you have the word of god in your lap is the proof thereof and the fact that you even feel remorse over sin is the proof thereof you're not sinless but you hate your sin is the proof thereof that god has already touched you but he did so even before the foundations of the earth so we looked at john fifteen sixteen. we looked at jeremiah 1 5 we looked at ephesians 1 3 and 5 1 thessalonians 1 verse 4 for we know brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. John 6, No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him to me. You cannot come to Christ unless the Father who sent Christ draws you to Him. He draws you to Him. Somebody asked me yesterday, why did God create the heaven? Oh, excuse me, why did God create the universe and the earth and people? Is this a big joke? <laughs> what? why did he do it i'll tell you why he did it for all things were created for what his glory he created this the the span of the universe he created it all he just threw it out there as a stage for his glory and then he created man so he can have he can find and choose a wife for his son whom he loves you were created not to be successful Now, it's wonderful to be successful because you can do so much for God. But that's not your ultimate purpose. That's not your ultimate call. Your call is that God be glorified in your life in a fallen world. And I'm so burdened and saddened to see the church glorifying themselves by elevating how Virtue they, virtuous they are, in all these challenges we find, whether it be the pandemic or whatever, it, or, or whether it is what we're going through right now. No, God be glorified. How? By hey, that's the truth. I'm not bending. That's how you glorify God. But this is why God created the universe to display His glory and to choose a wife for His Son, whom He loves. So we looked at John fifteen sixteen, Jeremiah one five, Ephesians one three and five. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, how about John 6.44, no one can come to Christ unless the Father who sent Christ draws him to Christ. Okay, we'll just end here. There's so many of these, but let's go to Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, those whom he foreloved before the foundations of the earth, he also predestined, he predestined them unto what? To become conformed to the image of his Son. Oh, it's the most amazing thing I have a video of me uh, uh, standing in Times Square asking Tina to marry me and you know when you see these videos where the guy goes on his knee and I'm one day I I will go on my knee one day wifey We were in the middle of Times Square. We were about to miss our flight, and I needed to propose to her. So I'm like, hey, you want to marry me? Get, put it down. Let's right. Jump on a cab. <laughs> got to catch our flight back because this one, we lived in Tinley, and we were. I said to her one day, I said, we were courting at the time. I said, hey, why don't we go up to New York, Times Square, our favorite city, and let's go and uh, have some tea. She goes, oh, that's exciting. We jumped on a plane really early in the morning, flew out there for tea, got engaged, and flew back. But she was so nervous that we we're going to miss the flight, and everybody's going to go like, oh, you guys spent the night in New York by yourselves. And so uh, we rushed out of there. But every time you see a video where, or a moment where somebody's pro- uh, you know, proposed to, the, the wife always, or the future wife always goes like, ah! and she starts screaming, right? And she I don't want to act it out, because then that's on video. But uh, she always screams, and she's excited, right? Well, folks, just so you know, the reason, the reason we have joy in Christ is because you have been asked your hand in marriage. That's why you have been chosen. So it says, Romans eight twenty nine: For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Verse 30, And these whom He predestined, in other words, before the destination, He called them. Remember, unless God draws you, you can't come to Christ. He also called those whom He predestined, and He draws them, and He calls them, and He calls them. And these whom He called, He also justifies them, how? Through the cross. And these whom he justified, he also glorified in Christ. Okay. Here is John MacArthur referring to that specific doctrine as an answer to what this Facebook acquaintance of mine threatened the church with. Okay, go ahead. Thank you. Obviously,
1: our country has had an issue with race for since the beginning. And we've seen a continued increase in racial issues from Ferguson to the Black Lives Matter movement. How does the church address it? Because there are some who are true believers that feel that the church isn't necessarily addressing those issues. But as we know, it's all about sin and the gospel at the very heart of it. But how does a pastor address this if their church isn't predominantly African-American or Does it want to become a
2: social justice church? First of all, I I think you you have to have this absolute confidence. Jesus said, I will build my church. He has already predetermined before the foundation of the world, the racial mix of his church, okay? He knows how many Latinos, how many Caucasians, how many African-Americans, how many Chinese, how many Japanese, they are all, their names have been all written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So uh, all I want to do is preach the Word of God, the gospel, with the same love that God has already determined to shed on every tribe and tongue and people and nation on the planet. So there's a a sense in which it is a non-issue. It doesn't even exist as an issue. I can't fix racial injustices. I can't fix people who feel like they're disenfranchised. I can't fix the history of the world. I can't rewrite the American history. I can't take anger out of people who feel like they're being flooded with uh, Muslim, Arabs who are changing their culture. I, I can't fix that. My responsibility is to realize that in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, bond nor free. We're all one in Christ and that that the Lord has chosen His church and that, that my responsibility is to preach the gospel throw my arms open to receive the ones the Lord has chosen and embrace that with with complete and full joy. The object of life is no longer to fix past injustices. The object of life now is to proclaim Christ to whomever. And I I just will not give that up for another agenda. I'm not going to say, now you're a believer. I'm going to send you back into a pre-salvation world and ask you if you can fix that. It just can't be done. I'd rather say, you've come to Christ, whatever your culture you've come from, you are now a missionary for the gospel. Go to those people in your sphere of influence and take Christ to them. And once they come to Christ, all other issues, the world is full of issues, obviously, but all other issues fall away. They just, they disappear uh, and the gospel takes prominence. All who are in Christ, chosen by the Lord, brothers and sisters in Christ, without regard to any kind of ethnicity, that's the body of Christ, and that ought to be celebrated by the church. Look, I'm not talking as a white guy just on the outside looking in. I was with a group of black leaders in Mississippi one night. I was with uh, Charles Evers, the brother of Medgar Evers, who was the first martyr of the Civil Rights Movement. And I was with all black leaders in Jackson when Martin Luther King was assassinated. There were no white people but me. I was there, they took me to Memphis. Within hours, I was standing on that motel deck where the bloodstains of Martin Luther King were. And I, was, I went back to that building. James Earl Ray stood on a toilet and shot him from that little window. I stood on that toilet, looked out that window and saw that view, within hours. I was involved in ministering in all across the black community in the South for a long time. I couldn't get food in restaurants in in the town that that I was in with John Perkins, my my dear brother. Uh, John reminded me of an interesting thing recently. When Martin Luther King was shot, I I was going around holding assemblies in, in these black high schools in Mississippi, and I had to hold a service, a funeral service for Martin Luther King. In those high schools so john perkins kind of chuckles when he says so oh, my friend john macarthur's going around holding memorial services for martin luther king look i've been on that side of it and i see that but i also see the power of the gospel and and when the gospel changes your life you go from social issues to spiritual issues
0: since i've been asked too many times Now, then here is my personal take on Black Lives Matter. Um, One of the main things to learn from the emergence of Black Lives Matter or the Black Lives Matter movement and organization is the need to distinguish the three elements in that phrase. There are three elements in that phrase. And the apprehension of using it versus the eagerness to use it. You know, people find themselves conflicted and they don't actually quite know why. And they go like, yeah, no, of course I want to, but why am I, you know, and so um, I want to outline it because I want to be real specific and articulate about it. The first, there are three issues to think about. The plain, number one, the plain truth of the phrase, the plain truth of the phrase is 100% true the phrase is 100% true as a matter of fact um, I'm again thinking back to him my wife woke up and she saw that news of that crime let me tell you that when you see a man murdered unjustly you ought to be enraged over the fact that an image bearer of God was treated unjustly and it was because he's an image bearer of God and that's why you ought to be enraged and that's why we're all enraged and that's why really for most part the church should be enraged and the whole, the whole there was solidarity complete solidarity of course now it's become convoluted but everybody what an outcry but from the church it's because there's an image bearer of God unjustly treated and it should never happen not to an forgiven man and not to an unforgiven especially not an unforgiven man however I do believe that he was often quoted saying put down your guns and pick up your Bibles so the first is the plain truth of the statement who wouldn't run to that statement the second element that needs to be identified and distinguished is the ideology or ideological nature of the origin of that organization. And this is what makes some go, This well, there's some disagreement. The third that needs to be recognized is the effects of that organization, not that statement, but that organization, not the affinity towards believing what actually is said there. Without looking beyond into an organization and their ideology, but rather the statement, you know, rather the, excuse me, the organization, the effects that that organization historically has unleashed in our streets. So without the distinguishing between these three areas of truth that are all encompassed in one statement, you can easily fall into error. And because even though you wholeheartedly can agree with that statement and you use that statement you might find yourself in complete disagreement with the ideology of that organization at the same time jacques if you had to ask me today do you want to defund police departments around the country i am absolutely no no i don't who in the world am i going to call are you, what has happened? The insanity of it. I'm standing on the corner of Roselle and Schomburg And I'm looking at all these young people. Looks like they just walked out of 12th grade or, 9, or 10th grade class. Holding big signs. F-U-K, The cops. Like, what do you even know? Like, wh- what do you even know? <laughs> Where did this come from? Where did this ideology come from? Well, I get, I get that people need to be, you know, they, you, can't, you can't expect there to be a perfect institution, right? There's always evil in people's hearts. So stop expecting the world to act like a regenerate heart. You can't expect that. There are cruel people, there are evil people, and they need to be put away, or they need to, be, they need to receive the death penalty, whichever. I, I'm okay with whatever happens. But my point is, are we really gonna, are we really gonna wag the dog by its tail? No, we shouldn't. Who am I going to call? So if you ask me, Jacques, would you like the police defunded? I'm like, no, no, for two reasons. Who am I going to call when I need family protected? You think this guy is going to stand up to a mob? (laughs) My last fight, I won by 500 yards. Are you kidding me? I won by 500 yards and then hopefully a mile next time. But the second reason I'm saying do not bind to that is because the Scripture tells us that they don't bear the sword in vain. Now, the Scripture didn't assume that these people are going to be angels and saints. No, it just said the government's not going to bear the sword in vain. So I'm like, no, I disagree. I disagree with that ideology. And unfortunately, check this out, What I absolutely agree with, the statement I absolutely agree with, I disagree with the organization that carries the same name, and there is a deception. There's a deception there. Do you see what I'm saying? And it's a problem, and nobody articulates the problem. So am I all for, are you kidding me? I've been in the ministry over 20 years, and much of it was in South Africa. And I believe that those that every human being has been created it bears the image of God. We've all been created in God's image and God's likeness. And what you heard Vodhi say is what I absolutely believe. Now, how do we experience peace? In troubled times, I have 60 seconds. Listen closely. <laughs> Peace in troubled times. This is a simple concept, but it's a powerful concept. The Word of God is clear in it. Look at Isaiah 26, verse 3. Isaiah 26, verse 3. If you can turn there with me. Isaiah 26, verse 3. The Bible says, Thou, God, you, God, will keep Him in perfect peace. Who? Who will you keep in perfect peace? The one whose mind is stayed on you. That man will be kept in perfect peace. But why would his mind be stayed on you? It tells us because he trusts in you. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee because he trusts, now read it backwards, because he trusts you, his mind is stayed on you, and because his mind is stayed on you, you will give him perfect peace. Your peace does not come from the fact that two people of two different uh, skin tones are now loving it. That's not loving each other that's not where your peace comes from your peace comes from somewhere else your peace comes from not the fact that there's no pandemic out there your peace comes from the fact not that there's no world wars brewing your peace comes from the fact that your mind is on god and your mind is stayed on god because you trust him i trust you god therefore i'm now going to look at you and see you determine how this thing turns out i'm gonna rely on you so i wanted to show you what it means to trust in god and how to find out if in fact you are trusting in god what does it mean to trust in god and how do i know that i'm in fact trusting god right now because i for one have often said no i trust god I trust God at the end of the month, you know, like, I trust God. And then I'm thinking, I'm wondering to myself, I've got this big question mark. Am I just saying it? Am I really trusting God? I'm not so sure. Because I'm saying I trust God, but I'm crumbling, thinking I'm not trusting God. So how do I know that I am? I know, There are two two ways, actually three ways, let me share, all three. I know that I trust God When? Number one, I'm able to obey God with little to no details. I know I'm trusting God when I'm able to obey Him with little to no details. Think of Noah. God tells Noah to go build an ark, which is like a massive ship. If you read in the Bible all the dimensions, it's a huge box. It takes him approximately 75 years to build this ark, to the dimensions that God gave him. Realize, though, when he built this, for those 75 years, he had never seen rain before. He had never experienced a flood before. He never took a trip on a boat before. There was no how to build a boat for dummies book out there, but God told him to build, and he said, okay, I guess I'll build this box. No details, little to nothing. I'm going to go ahead and obey the question remains can you obey god's direction for your life even though you have minimal details to zero and a million questions in comparison to it god you give me no details i'm giving you a million questions you really want me to obey you yes i do so the question is can you trust god's word that says Let not your hearts be troubled, folks. Let not your hearts be troubled. Yeah, but I don't think somebody likes me. (laughs) Let not your heart be troubled. Yeah, but they're talking about, let not your heart be troubled. While there was microaggression, let not your heart be troubled. While there was macroaggression, let not your heart be troubled. Count it all joy. Can you obey God when He tells you to do that? even though you don't have a solution in the near future can you trust God's word that says cast your cares upon him for he cares for you cast them cast them on him and let him carry the care for you can you do that can you obey him in that while you're standing in the middle of a storm a pandemic Can you trust God's word when he tells you, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you? Fear not. Can you trust him? Yeah, but God, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to turn. I'm not giving you any details, God says. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to trust me. If you had understanding of all things, what's faith all about then? So the first is, I know that I'm trusting God. My trust is real when I'm able to obey God without any details. Number two, I know that I'm trusting God when I'm able to be carefree without also being careless. I'm able to be carefree without also being careless. Mark four nineteen. but the worries of this world, the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter into your life, and it chokes the word, and it becomes unfruitful. The world, the word, excuse me, of God, the Word of God, the scriptures, can do nothing for you because you are filled with the worries and the cares that this life presents you. Even so, I mean, in this day, in this age, I think you'll agree with me that it is almost viewed as a virtue to be filled with cares and the cares of this life. Oh, he's so responsible. Oh, he, he, see, he feels so deeply. He sees so far into the future. And he sees things coming apart that I don't, I don't even see it. So, you know, he, he's so filled with the cares of this life. He's so virtuous. It is viewed as a superior quality for somebody to be filled with the cares of this life and the things that are taking place so I want to put you into remembrance of the life of Joseph as you know Joseph in the Bible he was favored by his father because of that favor it attracted his brother's hatred like it would for you too and uh, they threw him into a pit they sold him as a slave they lied about him they imprisoned him but he never gave up not on his dream I don't think he had a dream actually because it doesn't talk about him holding on to his dream he held on to the principles of God and he held on to the fact that his God is alive and well. His God is, his God is uh, superior. His God is sovereign and his God can make all things work according to his purposes and plans. He never gave up on his God. He never said, that's it. I, I, that's it. I, I don't even care anymore. I got hated by my brothers. I got thrown into a prison, into a pit, and then I got sold as a slave, and I, you know, what, I don't even care anymore, all this aggression going on, we know this, we know this is true, that he, that he didn't get to that point, because of how diligent he was, you see, a man who says, I just don't care anymore, he's no longer diligent, Joseph wasn't caught up in the cares of this world to the point where he simply didn't care anymore and said, that's it, I simply don't care because that's that's not the attitude of a young man who when he is approached by by a beautiful woman to commit a sin, Joseph said, how can I do this and sin against my God? You see, he wasn't resentful towards God. He didn't give up his faith and his belief in his God. You see, the thing that saved Joseph was his theology. And that's why, folks, I can stand up here and blow smoke at you all day long. I can stand up here and just jump on the bandwagon and say, Oh, you know what? Uh, Everything the world wants me to say, I'm going to say it. And I'm going to virtue signal from the beginning of the service to the end of the service. I can do that. But, folks, the only thing that really kept Joseph strong and helped him through what he was going through was the fact that he had a theology about God and that God's ultimate plans and purposes will succeed no matter what. No matter who doesn't like me, no matter who hates me, no matter who talks about me, no matter who gossips, no matter who slanders, no matter who thinks what or doesn't want to validate me, my validation doesn't come from people. It comes from God. And my hope of a future doesn't come from the fact that somebody now likes me and loves me and approves of me. And my hope for a future comes from the fact that God (laughs) promised one and that He's still on the throne, and that He is still supreme, and that He is still sovereign, and that He's always been God, and nobody's ever taken a moment on that throne, but God alone. And my God is on the throne, therefore, hate all you want. It's okay. I understand why the world acts the way the world acts. We have to grow up as Christians and see through the suffering. Joseph wasn't caught up in the worries and the cares of this world to the point where he became cynical and bitter. No, he remained diligent and faithful with what was in front of him. Why? Because he trusted God. He trusted, in, he trusted God in his circumstance. He trusted God in his situation. And he trusted God through his pain. And he trusted God through his suffering. And that is what God called you and me to do. He trusted God in his sorrow. He trusted God in his misery. The question for you here today is are you so filled with the cares of this life that you are suffering from hopelessness? Are you? Because that's a sign that you need to start trusting God. I don't see anywhere in scriptures where Joseph became hopeless, where Joseph became bitter, where Joseph became cynical, where Joseph just gave up up. No. His theology strengthened him. And he was able to rise to the top in every scenario, situation, and circumstance he found himself in. Even in the prison. The warden left the whole prison up to this prisoner, Joseph. (laughs) The guy was so full of hope because he knew he's God. His theology saved him. His perspective of who his God was is what insulated him so the question is are you so filled with the cares of this life that you are suffering from hopelessness maybe you're suffering from despondency maybe you're suffering from depression these signs are signs that you need to reevaluate are you really trusting god number three i know that i'm trusting god when I'm able to be secure in the midst of mystery. I'm secure in the midst of mystery. It doesn't seem like things are going to work out. I'm secure. It seems like the whole world's burning. I'm secure. (laughs) It seems like I was reading that my Facebook acquaintance's statement. I'm like, oh, you're going to lose a whole entire generation? I'm secure. You You know she's wrong, but because God's really chosen the bride that He needs for His wife, for His son point is just it doesn't matter what kind of threats come your way or what kind of you are secure not because of your circumstance but because of god's promise that's why you are secure Uh, i trust your promise i trust the one who promised i trust the one who promised that's why i look at that promise i'm secure but he's talking about you well i don't know who you want me to listen to i choose to listen to god I know that I'm trusting God when I'm able to be secure in the midst of mystery. When God calls Abraham, he says, Abraham, go to a place that you do not know. All right, that's awesome. Go to a place you do not know. And to top it off, God told him to leave everybody behind and everything behind. He says, imagine, imagine God tells you to leave your country. Imagine God tells you to leave your people behind. Imagine God tells you to leave everything behind that ever spelled security to you. And God calls you to an uncertain, unfamiliar, and unknown place. And it happens to be a desert of all places. And when you trust God, what you are really doing is you are entrusting to God into His hands the outcome of the situation you're currently in. If I say, I'm trusting you, God, I'm saying, God, I trust your person your character, your ability to never lie. I trust you with whatever the the outcome is in the situation. Now, let's say, for instance, in our situation here today, somebody says to me, this is not going to be over very soon. And he was referring to everything going on in the world today. Mike, what makes you say that? This is not going to be over soon. This is going to get much, much worse. And I, I tend to want to go like, oh, really? No way, you know. <laughs> but why aren't I saying, oh, what, you think that's what God's going to do? <laughs> you think that's what He's planning on? Because whatever He's planning on, I'm fine with. And you, as a believer in His character and His goodness, you ought to be fine with. I'm like, I don't know what God is doing. I mean, imagine Joseph in the middle of the process of him going to the, to the, to the palace. He going like, I, I don't know. You know? Do you think this is going to get much worse? Because if it is, it can't be God. You see, that's what people believe, and and they are not biblical because they've bought into some kind of um, some kind of theological model that m- makes God the one who only offers you what's convenient and only offers you what you enjoy. And if you don't enjoy it, it's not God. You know, so it's like he's not going to give you any medicine that doesn't taste good. <laughs> you know? He's God. He's good. Everything tastes good with him. It's candy. It's great. Look, let me say that again because I think it's a very important point. And I'm closing. If Joseph got halfway through, he struggled to the palace, and he decided that if anything gets worse from here on out, it couldn't be God. And it has to be the devil. He'd be wrong. Do you realize that? He'd be dead wrong. At the end, when his brothers stood in front of him, and he was able to feed them, because Joseph is a cr- type of Christ, right? Jesus' brothers hated him, wanted to kill him, and eventually he comes back to save them. And so Joseph, his brothers hated him, wanted to kill him, and eventually he comes back and saves them. And so Joseph, a type of Christ, it, <clears throat> you know, when he got to stand in front of his brothers, the king, like our Christ, And he says, what you meant for evil, God meant it all for good. I needed to get here, and that was the path God chose. So my point is, if you trust in God, then you are entrusting into His capable hands the outcome of whatever your situation is. God, I'm going to trust you with the outcome. Now, it might not be exactly how I would have designed it, because if I designed it, this would have been utopia, I promise you. If I would have designed it, if my son would have had to design it, it would be a massive screen with video games called Roblox right now. <laughs> you know, that's, that's life. And that's what he would have designed. And so we oftentimes act that way with God. So my point here is, hey, let's trust God that He's chosen outcome takes place right now even if it means some not so comfortable situations because there's a palace at the end of this road you rest in his wisdom that the outcome of a situation will be according to his will according to his purpose according to his glory according to his plans and not according to what I think is best so how do I know I'm trusting God number one I'm able to obey God with little, de- little to no details. How do I know I'm trusting God? Number two, I'm able to be carefree without also being careless. How do I know I'm trusting God? When I'm able to be secure in the midst of mystery. So I want to close. Let's trust God with every situation we find ourselves in life. It's awesome. It's freeing. It's loving. It enables you to actually love somebody even though they disagree with you. Yes, you can be angry, but you are not allowed to sin. Let me say that again. Yes, you should be angry, but God never allows you to go ahead and sin because of your anger. Yes, you can be fearful, but you ought to never give yourself to that fear. You ought to never respond based on that fear, in other words. Yes, you can be disheartened, but you never allow to be without hope because God is immutable. He never changes. Amen. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. Amen. Father, thank you so much. Oh God, I thank you. Gather your sheep, Lord. Gather your sheep. I pray none come behind, none come through the back door. Gather your sheep, God. I thank you, Lord, that we can gather around your word, we can gather around your truth and be united. Lord, I thank you for your wisdom. As we walk through the fire together, as we walk through hard times together and all the while be filled with joy that we may count it all joy, not because of what happened, but in spite of what happened, we are joyful, we are ecstatic, we are enthused because you have proposed and we are saying yes, we are saying yes, God, we trust you. We trust you even with little knowledge as to why you called us. We will say, yes, God. We trust you to the point where we can be carefree and be responsible at the same time. We trust you enough, God, that even though there's so much mystery around us, oh, God, we can be secure. We thank you for that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.